All right, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, If you were with us, we started a new series called Long Awaited. And kind of the the premise of the series is that um, Christmas, both the the first Christmas uh, some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, but also Christmas even now, is not ultimately about waiting on uh, a thing or an idea or even a date on the calendar. It, it was about waiting on a person, right? waiting on this long-awaited, this long-promised Messiah. And so um, last week we were in Matthew chapter 1 and we looked at um, kind of the quick overview of the first 17 verses and then we, we dove in and uh, starting in verse 18. And uh, we kind of let Matthew introduce us to Jesus as uh, the Christ or the Messiah, Uh, Jesus as Emmanuel that was prophesied hundreds of years before in the Old Testament, right? And so uh, Matthew introduced us to this Jesus, the Christ, uh, the Messiah, Emmanuel. Those names packed with significance. Uh, That was last week, so I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon. It is available online if you want to see that. Uh, But but we get another, uh, sort of another name or another, really another title given to Jesus this week in Matthew chapter 2. And so... Uh, Let's read it together, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then offering their treasures, they offered him, uh, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So I'm going to give you the, the central theme right out of the gate, right? So if you like check out after this or if it hits you in the moment that we are a week away from Christmas and you're like, I've got to do some shopping this morning, all right, and you're scanning through Amazon on your phone, you laugh, but I've seen it happen in a church service before, all right? So, so before it, any of that happens, here's the central idea, right? The, the part you can't miss is that Jesus is king and he is worthy of our worship, Right? That's the bottom line. Now, I'm going to give you more than that because that's what I do. Right? But that's the bottom line. And so, um, 
Right? Last week, Jesus was Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, Emmanuel, God with us, God wrapped in flesh. This week, it's Jesus is the King. That's what we see in the, the question that uh, the wise men pose to King Herod. Right? We've got these wise men showing up, and in verse 2, they say, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Right? Jesus is King. My, my goal this morning is not to convince you that Jesus is king. Right? I'm beginning with the premise, Jesus is king. Right? We could do a long study about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the, uh, the, the promise made to David back in the Old Testament that one would uh, reign on his throne, a descendant of his would reign on the throne over Israel for forever. Right? We could do that study. It'd be a worthwhile study, but that's not my goal this morning. My goal is to already begin at the, at the point Jesus is king, and then for us to consider, okay, what does that require of us then? Right? What's our risk? If Jesus is king and he is, then what does that mean for us? And so uh, I'm going to do that by looking at some of the, the players in this narrative this morning. Right? Some of these key figures, uh, some of these individuals or groups that are mentioned here in Matthew chapter 2 to look at their response to the king uh, and, and then let that kind of point us to the way that we should respond. And so... Uh, let's start by looking at the first major player, and that is King Herod, all right, or, or Herod the king. So uh, Matthew describes Jesus' birth as taking place in the days of Herod the king. All right? um, I don't know how much you know about Herod. I don't know if you uh, know much of his background, much of his story, but uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of context to kind of shape it. Um, Herod was, was the king over Judea. Uh, he was... Not a, uh, not Jewish, fully Jewish, right? He was kind of a, a different uh, branch there, but he was appointed by the Roman uh, officials, the Roman governors, uh, as the, the king over the area of Judea, right? And um, it was, he was appointed as a king approximately 40 BC, right? Herod becomes the king over Judea. And uh, according to historians, he was very politically gifted, Right, very politically gifted, um, but, but he was also incredibly uh, paranoid and jealous. Maybe that's just what's required to be in politics, I don't know. But um, right, he was politically gifted, but incredibly paranoid, incredibly jealous. Evidenced by the fact that you, you look at his history, this is not in the Bible, but this is just historians. Um, he, he actually was known to have some of his closest associates and allies killed out of jealousy, even had uh, at least one of his wives killed out of paranoia and jealousy, even had uh, multiple sons killed out of paranoia and jealousy. Right, so we're, we're talking about a bloodthirsty, power-hungry king who was bound and determined to to get power, to grab hold of power, and to do everything within his power to, to hold on to it. Right, so you can imagine Herod's response when, when these guys show up from a long ways away. But pause here for just a second. We need to have this conversation. How many guys have nativities set up in your homes? Okay. So the wise men weren't actually at the nativity have that discussion. They, were, they came from a long ways away. So if you want to set up your nativity in your home accurately, you need to put the wise men like, like in the backyard somewhere. Okay? 
just saying. Anyways, back to the point at hand. These wise men show up from a long ways away. And they go to King Herod, who's, who's the king, kind of the, the political king over Judea. And they say, hey, where's this child that's been born king of the Jews? And if Herod's a bloodthirsty, power-hungry, get power, hold on to power, at all costs kind of king, you can imagine his response to that. Actually, you don't have to imagine. It says in verse 3, right? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Right? Herod, the king of Judea, is, is troubled, is disturbed, is in sort of this inner turmoil when he hears these guys show up looking for a king that's not named Herod. Right? And so... Uh, it leads to, you follow Matthew's narrative further on into Matthew chapter 2, it leads to, to Herod doing some like, like unconceivable things. Right? Uh, you follow it on in Matthew chapter 2 out of jealousy, out of a desire to, to grab hold and hang on to power, out of his own paranoia. Herod ultimately sends the decree to have all male children under two years old murdered in Bethlehem to get rid of this perceived threat to his, his power. Right? And, and what we see in, in Herod's response, right, this is what we're, we're going for this morning, is what's our response to King Jesus? And here we see Herod's response to this child-born king. It's a response of hostility. Right? A response of, of hostility. That's the first heart response we see in the, the text this morning. And, and listen, it's, hostility is not just something we see in King Herod. Right? Because hostility, as a response to King Jesus, we can still see this in the human heart today. Right? I mean, you, you look at like, any, anybody that, like some of the, the, the narratives and stuff of this world that, um, that have power and are grasping for power, Right, whenever right, Jesus, King Jesus, whenever he, he, he doesn't line up with what, what their idea of power is, you, you see the, the conflict in that. You see this in the, the things going on around the world. You see things happening in our country in this. But, but I want to go, um, I don't want to do a cultural commentary. I want to get to our own hearts here. Okay? Um, because we can see hostility as a response to King Jesus in our own hearts. Right? And maybe you're like, uh-uh, not me, pastor. I love Jesus. Ain't no hostility in this heart. Right? Well, uh, you might disagree with the Apostle Paul then. Um, here's, what, here's what Paul writes, Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 21. He says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Right, so this is Paul talking about talking to the, the church in uh, the, to the Colossians, and he's saying, Hey, before Jesus, before you surrendered your life to Jesus, before you were reconciled to Jesus, you were separated, alienated, and hostile in mind toward the things of the Lord. Right? If you are a, if you're here and you're a Christian, you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, right? there was a day that you weren't a follower of Jesus. And that day 
Right? Before you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you were hostile in mind towards the things of God. And I know maybe you were saved at the age of seven, right? and your pure and innocent little seven-year-old heart, it was wicked. Right? It was. It's the default posture of the human heart is, is hostile towards the things of God. You just didn't live long enough to see that like, play out in some really wicked ways, maybe. But you were hostile in, in mind. Right, until the, the day that the Spirit of God showed up, transformed your heart, transformed your desires. Right? That's your story. If you're a Christian, you were once hostile in mind. That's what Paul just wrote. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to be straightforward enough to tell you that, that if, you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're hostile towards God this morning. You may not feel like it, right? but if we believe the Word, then the Word says, hey, to be separated from God, to, to not be reconciled with Him, is to be hostile in mind towards the things of God. Because this is the default posture of every human heart apart from the transforming work of the Spirit. But, but the good news, praise God, is that He doesn't leave us uh, alienated and hostile. Right? This is the, the good news of the gospel, actually, if, if you're there in Colossians 1, just a few verses earlier, Paul writes this in verse 19. He says, For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So that was last week, right? Emmanuel, God with us. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right, the, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came right, and that, that through him, through his perfect life, through his death, through his resurrection in our, our place as our substitution, that, that our hostility and our rebellion is replaced with, Paul's words, reconciliation and peace. So that we were once hostile, alienated towards the things of God, Jesus comes on the scene, right, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for our sin, raises from the dead to prove that he's more powerful than sin and death and hell and the grave. And we put our trust in Jesus. He moves us from, from alienated and hostile to, to reconciled and at peace with God. All right, if you're a Christian, this is your story. You've been moved from hostility separation to reconciliation and peace. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Right? But, but here's what I, I really want to get to. Even if you are a Christian, there are still like traces or remnants of hostility toward God in your heart. Right? And, and here's... Let me, let me go back. I feel like I'm just preaching out of Colossians this morning. I'm supposed to be preaching out of Matthew. But right, back to the verse I just read a few minutes ago, Colossians 1.21. Look at how Paul, uh, look at how he links hostility. Look, look at what he links hostility with. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Right, here's what I want you to hear. Every sin. Every act of 
disobedience to King Jesus and his authority is ultimately an act of hostility and rebellion towards him. Right? Even if you're a Christian, right? this, is, this is the old nature coming back through. Because I, I don't know if you know this or not. When you become a Christian, you don't become perfect. Some of you may be like, that's just what you need to hear this morning. Like, and, and I know it's funny, but like, it's, it's exhausting, right? And you just think, like, I've got to be perfect all the time. It's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, we strive for holiness. We pursue holiness. And you're going to fall short a lot. The good news of the gospel is that, that that's not who you are anymore. That's your, that's your old identity and your old nature, the old man coming through. The one who was formerly hostile in mind towards the things of God. And this is what sanctification is. It's, it's whenever, um, whenever the old man comes through, right? Whenever the, we begin to act in ways that are hostile towards the things of God, it's us putting those things to death, right? Crucifying sinful, rebellious, hostile desires right? by the power of the Spirit. Right? That's what sanctification is. And so how do you, how do, you do that? I would say by, by reorienting your worship. Right, but we'll talk about that more in just a minute. So we looked at King Herod. Right? King Herod was hostile towards Jesus the king. But there's another group that we're introduced to here, the, the chief priests and the scribes. And so um, let's jump back in in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2. We're back in Matthew now, so we're on the same page. Matthew chapter 2, back in verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, they were asking about this child-born king of the Jews. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So let's give Herod, we were, I feel like we were pretty harsh on Herod, probably should be, but I'm going to give him a little credit because Herod at least knows when these wise men show up asking for this, uh, where's this child that's born king of the Jews, he at least knows something's happening here. Right? He, he clearly didn't understand the fullness of it, but, but something stirred up in Herod where he's like, this is significant. And so not understanding exactly what they were asking or, or what they meant or what they were inquiring about. Herod goes to these men who would know, the chief priests and the scribes. Right, they are uh, some of these sort of religious elite of the day. These would have been men who um, uh, most likely were made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, which just two groups of really religious, well-studied, uh, knowledgeable people in, in first century uh, Jerusalem. Right? These are men who would have had entire sections, chunks of the Old Testament memorized, especially the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah. Right? They would have likely had that committed to memory, the, the Old Testament law. Right? They would have known the, uh, the words from the prophets in the Old Testament as they spoke on behalf of God to the people of Israel. That's evidenced by the fact that when, when King Herod inquires of them, hey, what's going on here? They quote Micah. Right, the Old Testament book of Micah. They, they quote Micah 
uh, the prophet and what he says about this, this coming Messiah where he's going to be born. And so uh, what, you've got these men that King Herod goes to and says, hey, I need some help understanding, uh, discerning what's going on here. Right? And, and what, I wanna really, what I want you to see in the chief priests and the scribes, it was not what they did, it's not what they knew, but it's what they didn't do. It's what, they, it's what they didn't do because rumors are going around that, there's, that, that the Christ has been born. Right? The Messiah has been, this, this was the one that's been promised long ago. Right? The rumors are going around that this child has been born. These wise men have showed up. They've traveled for, for hundreds if not thousands of miles to, to meet and to see and to, to worship this child born King of the Jews, right? They want to get a glimpse of this for themselves. But, but what these chief priests and scribes didn't do, like, they're well-studied, they're uh, well-read religious leaders. They had all the intel, all the intel on, on, on the Messiah and his coming and his birth and where it would be and all the details surrounding that. And yet when it, it came to the point where, like, there's a buzz the Messiah's been born. They can't be bothered. Right? The, the wise men traveled from, from hundreds of thousands of miles to come see this one born king of the Jews. But, but the, the chief priests and the scribes, they'll tell you where he is. You should go look here and see him. But they don't, they don't make any effort to go themselves. Right? They don't have any interest to go and see if, if the prophet's words are true. They don't have any interest to go and see this child that's, that's born, this one that's uh, been deemed as the Messiah. For them, it was just, yeah, we, we know the answers, but it's just back to business as usual. And, and what we see in the chief priests and the scribes is a kind of apathy and indifference towards Jesus the King that, that is really like, kind of staggering. Right? For these men to have studied the Old Testament to know, like they would, should know like the direction this is going. Right? They know enough to, to tell King Herod and the wise men, like, hey, if the Messiah is born, he's going to be born in this place, this time, that's where you can find him. And yet they can't be moved to any sort of action. Right? They're... Their response to Jesus, the king, the one who would one day have all authority, their response to him is just kind of, eh. Right? And, and I can't help but wonder, like how often is that our response towards Jesus? Jesus, not just the king of the Jews, but the, the king of kings. Right, the one who, we start here in, in Matthew, and he's, he's born king of the Jews, right? But we get to the end of Matthew, and he's the one who says, hey, all authority has been given to me. And how often is our response to, to him just one of, eh? Like we know who he is. We know what he wants from us. We know what he desires for us but we just can't really be bothered with it because it's inconvenient. 
I think, and if anything, I think responding in like apathy and indifference is far more worrisome than, than responding in hostility. Right? I think, actually, there's a, there's a great line by, uh, I think the band is the Lumineers, where they say the, the opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is not hostility. The opposite of love is, I don't really care. I can't be bothered with it. And that's what we see in the chief priest. And I just wonder how, like how often is that the response in our own hearts? Right? And what makes it so troubling is like, this is what we naturally drift towards. Right? Like, like for example, no one has ever woken up in the morning and said, you know, I just need to kind of cool my affections for Jesus today. Right? No one's ever woken up and just been like, I love Jesus too much. I need to, I need to pump the brakes on this. Right? But, but is, that, is that not the way that our hearts kind of naturally drift? Right? Like we get consumed with the things of this world. And listen, I know, we've all got stuff going on. I know. Right? But we just get consumed by, by an infinite number of lesser things. And all of a sudden we look back and we're like, man, I don't, I don't love Jesus the way I once did. I'm not excited about the things of the Lord like I once was. Right? Because that's the, the natural drift of the human heart is kind of away from these things. Towards apathy. Towards indifference. Right? And, and the chief priests and the scribes really are kind of a warning sign for us. Because here... They're sort of apathetic and indifferent. Right, but you, you follow the story of the chief priests and scribes throughout the Gospels and you get to the end of Matthew, Matthew 26 and 27. It's the chief priests and the scribes are the ones that are clamoring, trying to like, work the crowd up to cry out for Jesus to be crucified. So what started is just kind of a take it or leave it attitude is a hostile attitude. Right? Their, their, their apathy and complacency towards the end of Jesus' life is full-blown rebellion. Right? They're the, the, the ones who couldn't, be, who couldn't be bothered to go see this child-born king of the Jews are the one who mock Jesus as he's nailed on a cross with a sign over his head that read what? King of the Jews. Listen, apathy, indifference, complacency are just not optional for those who claim allegiance to Jesus. Right? Like, like the Bible doesn't really make any space for sort of nominal Christianity. Right? And, and let me give you these, these are Jesus' words to an apathetic church in Revelation be familiar to some of you. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, apathetic, complacent, indifferent, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now there's some differences and in interpretation as to what exactly Jesus means there. But, but 
Regardless, here's what I would say. If Jesus is saying to you, I will spit you out of my mouth, like that's not good. Right? So regardless of what the interpretation is, you don't want that. Right? So let me, let's come back to this. If hostility and uh, sort of apathy and indifference, if these are sort of the wrong responses to Jesus the King, then what is the right response? What is the proper response to this one who's born king of the Jews, who's ultimately king of kings? What's the proper response to him? And we see that in the visit of the wise men. So back in Matthew here, first two verses again. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Right, and then we follow the passage we read. Right? Herod does this sort of subversive scheming to kind of find out where Jesus is born. But jump down to verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And the, the response of these wise men, who, who, okay, this is free. This is not in my notes. The wise men came from the east. They are not Jewish. They are from the nations. It's interesting that the first people you see worshiping Jesus in the book of Matthew are Gentiles. That's thought that was interesting this week. Right, you get to the end of Matthew's book, and he's like, says, hey, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of, of all nations. Kind of got this bookend here in the book of, of Matthew that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings, the Lord over all. So that was not my notes. Anyways, back to my notes. That's, how I, that's why I preach 40-minute sermons is because stuff like that happens. Okay, three, I, want, I want to highlight three things that we see in the response of the wise men. And then we'll end our time together this morning just doing what the text drives us towards. Worshiping the King of Kings. Alright, so three things uh, to, to help sort of shape our worship of Jesus the King. First, if you look at verse 10, it says, The wise men, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, I love that sentence because that might be one of the most redundant sentences in the Bible. Right? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That literally means they showed great joy exceedingly with great joy. If I type that in an English paper, I'm, that's not passive, but you know, I guess the Holy Spirit gets away with it in the Bible. But right, They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Right, this is the heart of what worship is. It is... It is responding, it's overflowing with joy and gladness for what God has done for you 
through Jesus Christ. Right? Through sending Jesus to live the perfect life you could not live, to die the death on the cross that you deserve to die, absorbing all of God's wrath toward sin that you deserved to bear, and raising, rising from the grave on the third day to prove that his payment was sufficient. And that's been given to you. Like, that should stir up some joy in us, some gladness, some gratitude for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, right? He is, what we said earlier, he's met your hostility with peace. He's met your rebellion with reconciliation. He's met your sin and your brokenness and your shame with grace and mercy and forgiveness. And if that doesn't stir your heart up and move you towards joy, like, I don't know what will, right? So the heart of worship is us responding to Jesus the King with joy. Like, we should be a people who rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Right, one of the things that I, I, I find myself praying often is just that I don't want the good news of the gospel to just kind of become a cool story. Like it's, it's good for you to remember your brokenness and your need, who you were before Jesus or who you were apart from Jesus. Right, even again, if you were, became a Christian at the age of five, six, seven, you didn't fully understand uh, what the direction your life could have gone, to, to read the pages of the Bible and to see this is what the, the Word of God says about those who are not followers of Jesus, who have not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. It's good to you, for you to, to see that's who I was. I may not have fully been aware of it in the moment, but that's who I was, but I'm not anymore because of what Jesus has done for me. Our response should be one of joy. All right, second thing. So not only did they rejoice exceedingly with great joy, but it says they fell down and they worshipped him. Right? This is an act of just humility before Jesus the King. Right? Despite the song, what the song says, we don't know that these three wise men were king. Actually, we don't know that there were three wise men. There could have been 50 for all we know. See, we just, not only do you need to take them out of your manger scene, you may need more than three of them. Okay, But these men, we don't, we don't know if they were kings or not. But what we can presume based on the gifts that they gave, that they were wealthy, that they had some sort of power and influence. Um, and yet here, wealthy as they were, influential as they were, they, when they come before Jesus the King, what was their response? They fall down. And they worship. Which is what you do in the presence of someone who is higher than you. More authoritative than you. Has more power than you. This is, this is their response. They, they fall down in worship. This is what, and this is what our worship is. It's a, it's a reorienting of our heart towards King Jesus who has all authority. Right? Jesus alone sits on the throne. Right? It, and it, it ain't a couch. He ain't sharing it with anybody. 
right? It's a throne. And so when we come to worship, like I hope what we're doing is we're, like we're acknowledging Jesus, you are higher, you are greater, you are more authoritative. And we come to surrender and submit our lives before you as king, as the one who has all authority. Right, so they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They fell down and they worshiped. And the, the third thing it says they do is they offered him gifts. And there's, you can do the deep study about what the gifts mean and the significance of the gifts. I think we just, song, just sang about that too. But what I really just want you to see is that they offered, I mean, these are, these are extravagant gifts. Right, these are significant. These are costly gifts. And they joyfully, gladly offer them to this child, the king. Right, this, is, this is a part of what worship is. It's us offering the very best of what we have to Jesus the king. All right, surrendering whatever, is, like whatever we have, the best of what that is, we, we give it to Jesus. Our time our schedules, our finances, our abilities, our talents, right? our, our gifts, we bring them to Jesus. In, really, in short, the summary is that every square inch of our lives should be offered to Jesus the King as an act of worship. This is what Paul gets at in Romans 12 when he says, present your bodies, your, your lives, every Every square inch of your life, present it as a living sacrifice. Right? This is your spiritual worship, is what Paul says. That's what, that's what worship is. Yeah, worship is singing. Yes, worship is responding to the word. Right? But worship is not just something we do in like a two-hour window uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning. Right? It's, it's the entirety of our lives and all that we have offered to Jesus the King. Right? This is our worship so the wrong responses to Jesus the king hostility apathy and the right response is worship so here's I'm going to leave you with a question to think on ponder on and then the band's going to come and lead us Here, here's your question what is your most common response to Jesus the king let me nuance that. I don't mean like, what's, what's the right answer? Like, what's the right response? Because right, hopefully if you've been listening for the last few minutes, you know what the right response is. Right, so I, I'm not asking you what should your response be. I'm saying what is your most common response to Jesus the King? Right, and and I, I, don't, I don't mean like, what was your response on your best day? But I mean, like, what is your most common response to Jesus? Is it hostility? Is it a, a refusal to submit and surrender to the one who holds all authority? Is it apathy, indifference? Is, is it knowing that Jesus is the king, worthy of worship, but, but you just can't really be bothered with that right now? Or is it worship? Is your default response to Jesus worship a glad, joyful response 
to Jesus that, that results in every area of your life being increasingly, I said increasingly because none of us are perfect. None of us are perfectly surrendered to Jesus yet. Okay? We're working on it. One day we'll get there. It won't be on this side of eternity. Okay? But we're going to keep striving for it. Is your life increasingly being offered to Jesus as an offering to him, as an act of worship to him? What is your most common, your default response to Jesus the King? So as you consider that question this morning, I'm, I'm going I'm to pray for us, and we're going to respond just by doing what this text has driven us towards, singing praise and worship to the King of Kings. How would you pray with me this morning? Father, we've heard your word. I have sought to do the best that I know how to present your word to your people. Uh, even in that, I, I'm aware of my own limitations and inadequacies. I cannot do what your spirit alone can do. And so I pray this morning that, that as we look at our lives and, and try to answer this question, what is the most common default response of our hearts toward Jesus? Would you help us to see kind of where we land on that spectrum? Or right, if there's hostility in our hearts towards King Jesus, would you reveal that, that we might repent and turn and eradicate that and put that to death. Lord, maybe for someone here this morning, you've just revealed to them that, that their, their posture towards Jesus is one of hostility because they've never surrendered their life to Him. Would you reveal that to them this morning? And give them the courage to, to come forward and receive Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Father, for many of us, would you reveal where we are apathetic, where we are indifferent, where we are complacent, where we are lukewarm? Lord, would you do what the psalmist says? Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Lord, would you give us zeal and passion for you? Lord, help us to, to not just go through life sort of distracted by a myriad of other things, but, but giving our lives first and foremost to you. And then, Father, as we consider our, the responses of our heart, I, I pray that you would move us all towards a place of worship. That, that you would, Lord, work in our hearts, transform our hearts to where our earnest desire is to give every square inch of our lives to you as an act of worship. Beginning this morning, as we, as we sing here in just a minute, we recognize that you are the King of kings, worthy to receive honor and glory and worship and praise. Lord, maybe, maybe some of these hearts this morning are far from that. Would you, would you get us there? Would you get us there? Lord, help us to worship you because you deserve it. You are, uh, Jesus, you are the king worthy of our worship. So I pray you be honored this morning. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.